you're visiting with us this morning, on Sunday mornings we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and that means that we jump between the different Gospels for what is the next event that occurred in his life. And so we've been in Luke's Gospel for a little while. Now we jump over into John's Gospel, chapter 11, for the next event in his ministry. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And therefore the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that uh, Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Well, that's hardly how you'd expect him to express his love. Well, that's precisely what he did. And then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And these things he said, and after that he said to them, Our, Lord La our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And so Jesus made himself plain and declared, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas Consistent, you've got to give them credit for that. And, uh, and so when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning the loss of their brother. And then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. And then notice in verse 32, Mary says much the same thing when she ultimately comes to Jesus as he comes into the city of Bethany. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this passage. and of scripture and we love to turn to your book to this bible and we know lord that everywhere in it there is some truth that you know we need to have planted in our hearts and in our minds and in our spirits in order to properly navigate the craziness of this world all around us and even our own personal lives lord and so we pray that you would take this passage why it's in the Bible, and that you'd take it off of the pages of 
of the book that is in our hands. And Lord, give it a living place in each one of our lives. We pray also that we would hear the voice of your Spirit and the witness of your Spirit as we study your Word this morning. We want it to be a supernatural time, Lord. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever had the Lord delay in some great need or difficult situation in your life? And then to have Him delay in interjecting Himself actively into the situation and have that delay then cause great confusion in your heart, even sometimes great frustration in our heart at God's failure to move quickly in a crisis that's going on in our lives. Have you ever been in a situation that you know would be so easy for God to fix? It would be effortless for Him to just turn the circumstances completely around bring this situation to a, a happy ending, and yet he doesn't. And for the life of you, you can't think of one good reason why he wouldn't quickly interject himself into the situation and fix it and give it the happy ending that, that we're wanting it to have. When the, what needs to be done in the situation is so obvious to you, what needs to be done in the situation is so obvious to everyone around you. Anybody can look and say, this is what God needs to do in this situation. And yet, for some reason, God chooses to delay becoming actively involved in the situation. Have you ever had God keep you waiting? And then, have you ever felt that God was taking longer than necessary to deliver on a promise that He has made to you from His Word. Have you ever had God keep you waiting in a situation in your life, not only beyond the point that you think is the ideal point for Him to introduce Himself into the situation and turn it around, but He waits and delays until the situation begins to deteriorate. And it begins to move from not only a, a situation that is difficult, a situation that is hard, but then it moves from difficulty to crushingly hard and ultimately even to the place that now, as a person would look at it, you see that it's now completely impossible for this thing to be turned around. And some of us might find ourselves in just such a situation this morning. I think that all of us, sooner or later, in our walk with the Lord, doesn't matter if you're a Mary, doesn't matter if you're a Martha, doesn't matter what our personality is in the body of Christ, doesn't matter what God's calling is upon our lives, doesn't matter how much God loves us, every single one of us is going to find ourselves in a point in time and in a circumstance in our Christian lives, probably more than, many more than one time, where the delay of God to actively introduce Himself overtly into a situation in our life where His delay causes great confusion to us and can produce 
great frustration even in our hearts related to that delay. And I want to talk about that a little bit this morning from this passage. And this passage of Scripture has always brought me needed perspective in my life during those kind of times. And I really pray that it will become a friend if it isn't already to each one of us this morning. And the title of the message is called, When Love Delays. In the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit builds the entire Gospel around seven great miracles of Jesus. The Holy Spirit had plenty of miracles to choose from. At the end of the Gospel of John, the Bible says that if everything was recorded of Jesus' miracles and of His teaching, that the world couldn't contain the books that would be written. But the Holy Spirit just carefully chooses seven miracles from His ministry in order to give proof to the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah and is worthy of our faith in Him as our personal Savior and as, as our Lord. And the seventh of those seven miracles is the miracle that we have contained here in John chapter 11, and that is Jesus' raising of a man by the name of Lazarus from the dead. In the passage we're told that there was a certain man, verse 1, who was sick. And as I've said, his name was Lazarus. He was from the town of Bethany, Bethany being about two miles away uh, from Jerusalem, we're told in verse 18. Lazarus had two sisters who lived in the same town. Their names were Mary and Martha. And I always like the fact that the Holy Spirit here has chosen to describe Bethany as the town of Mary and her sister Martha. I think it's interesting to note that what makes a city noteworthy to the Lord is not its art, not its culture, uh, not its industry, not its educational centers, but what makes a city noteworthy in the heart and the mind of God is the fact that you are there. The fact that God has children in that city, that He has friends in that city, and it is the presence of God's children in a city that makes a city special or famous in the eyes of the Lord. It's that that makes a city uh, significant because it is through the lives of God's people that something eternal is being accomplished in that city and it is only those eternal things that are going to outlive the heavens and the earth. I think that a person gets the distinct impression that if God were to speak of Paris, he wouldn't speak of the architecture, he wouldn't speak of the Louvre, he wouldn't speak of all of the other great museums, he wouldn't speak of the uh, Champs-Élysées, he wouldn't speak of the ta Arch of, of, of Triumph, he wouldn't speak of the Eiffel Tower, he wouldn't speak of any of these things that if you ever got him to speak to you concerning Paris, he would speak to you of his children that reside there. He could give you the names and the addresses, and, and that's what makes Paris special to him. Because all of those other things are one day going to melt with a fervent heat. But the life of his children, the work that he accomplishes through his children, that's going to outlive the heavens and the earth. And that's just like a father, isn't it? What's most important to him uh, is his children over everything else. Now you take a city that is the polar opposite in terms of 
uh, beauty and reason for why you might live there. Let's choose a city that's opposite of Paris. Let's say Bakersfield. No trip to Southern California right down 99 or 5, you know, is complete without knowing that Bakersfield is... I, for the life of me, I don't understand why anyone would live in Bakersfield. So, uh, but there's a lot of people that don't understand why we live in Modesto or any particular place in the world. So I'm not picking on Bakersfield if you're from Bakersfield today. But you know. I mean, <laughs> come on. Why would... Anyway. So... You got the polar opposite. So you could hardly, you could hardly find, I mean, if you were to go through the streets of various cities in California, you could hardly find a hardcore fan of Bakersfield. But I'll tell you, go up to somebody, go up to some father who has children in Bakersfield, and mention the name of Bakersfield, and his eyes will light up. His speech will become animated. Because that's where his children live. That's what makes a city significant in the hearts of, of, of a father. So there are many other people living in, in Bethany. But when God looked upon it, he saw the city as the city of Mary and of Martha. Notice in verse 3 that Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus. And uh, that their brother Lazarus was sick. And there in the city of Bethany, Jesus, we know from the end of chapter 10, he's about 20 miles away in uh, Bethabara, and uh, where John was per- had, the Baptist performed his uh, ministry uh, earlier. And uh, so they send these messengers now 20 miles. They inform Jesus that this sickness that Lazarus has is obviously it has to be very serious. They're not going to send messengers to Jesus over the terrain of of 20 miles to tell him that Lazarus has the flu or that he has a cold. Clearly, Lazarus is sick with something that has his sisters deeply concerned. And the Greek word that is used for sick here related to Lazarus means that he is seriously sick or debilitatingly sick. And so he is very, very ill and his condition is deteriorating by the hour. Now, so they are in a situation that is humanly impossible. I mean, they're powerless to change the physical condition of their brother. And so recognizing that they're powerless in the face of it, they want to introduce Jesus into the situation. And so they wisely turn to him for help. Now, it's important to notice that though Lazarus, verse 3, was very sick, indeed he is about to die, that when they sent messengers to Jesus, even though Lazarus was sick, they did not view his sickness as a reason to doubt Jesus' love for Lazarus. They knew that even though Lazarus was sick, that that was not a reflection, an adverse reflection upon Jesus' love for him. And here is, is a, a family in Bethany, these three, they're loved by God, and, and yet though they're greatly loved by God, they are not immune to sickness. They're not immune to death. They're not immune to the consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve uh, in the Garden of Eden on, on planet Earth. And, and so disease, death, sickness... This comes even to those who love God and, and that are loved by God. It's interesting in verse 3, 
and I think very noteworthy, to see the love of God and sickness spoken of in the same verse. They're not mutually exclusive. Here he became sick and he died, though he was a lover of God, though he was loved by God, though he was a friend of Jesus, we're told in verse 11. The fact of the matter is, the Bible teaches that barring the rapture of the church uh, coming first, that each one of us is probably going to die of whatever we get sick of last. And it was not a reflection of God's love for us because of the world that he ushers us into following this life. I think it is also interesting to note that Martha and Mary made no request of Jesus to immediately come uh, to Bethany in order to heal Lazarus. They just inform him, the, the one that you love is sick. He is seriously sick. Now, I think behind that informing Jesus of Lazarus' condition, there is the idea in their mind that all we need to do is let Jesus know about Lazarus' need and he will surely drop everything and make the 20-mile journey in a jiff to get over to Bethany and to heal our brother Lazarus. And that that was their expectation that he would do that. Upon hearing the news, he would immediately drop everything, immediately go to Bethany, heal Lazarus, is evidenced by the fact that later on in verse 21 by Martha and then in verse 32 by Mary as we read, the first words that came out of their mouth when Jesus ultimately came to Bethany was, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, the message that we sent to you was that you would have come immediately and healed him so that he would not have died. Now Jesus' response to uh, this urgent news of Lazarus' condition is very, very puzzling in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 contains his uh, verbal response. He declares to those that are present, the messengers, and then also to his disciples, that death will not have the final say in Lazarus' situation. He's not saying that Lazarus won't die, but he's saying that Lazarus won't remain in that condition. In other words, death will not have the final say in this circumstance, but my word will have the final say in this circumstance. He further declared that God is going to work Lazarus' uh, sickness together for good, that God is going to use it to bring glory to himself and also to bring glory uh, to his son Jesus. And that the end of this whole situation, the end of this whole trial, would be exactly that, to bring glory to the Father and bring glory to Jesus. Now notice in verse 6, Jesus' physical Response. I mean, I'm tracking with him so far. So he gets the news. He kind of speaks words of comfort to everyone. These are all the things that we would say that would be consistent, a consistent response from someone with a heart that we know that Jesus has uh, for people. But then his physical response really confuses us, I think, in verse 6, where upon receiving that news, he doesn't drop everything and race off to Bethany, you know, overnight to go and take care of the problem. But we're told that he stayed two more days where he was. And that wasn't what the sisters thought that he, he would do. He delayed two full days before ultimately making his journey to Bethany. And it's a very, very curious response, I think, uh, on Jesus' part. Now, he knows something 
that nobody else knows in the situation. And this is important to realize when God does things that confuse us, we can be sure He knows things we don't know. He knows things that nobody else knows about this situation. He knows things about the situation that even the messengers don't know. And one of the things that he knows is that in the time that it is taken, those messengers, the, uh, the, the full day that it's taken them to travel that 20 miles from Bethany to Jesus, that during the course of that journey, Lazarus had died. And we know that because when Jesus finally arrives in the city of Bethany, we're told that Lazarus had already been dead for two days. And so it would have taken the messengers a full day to get to Jesus. Jesus delays two days. He then takes a full day to get with his disciples from uh, where he is to Bethany a total of four days, and it appears that Lazarus died probably almost immediately after the messengers had been sent to Jesus. In other words, there's no sense in rising up quickly and heading off to uh, Bethany in order to heal, Jesus, heal Lazarus. There was no healing to be done. He was already dead. And apparently in Jesus' mind, you can resurrect somebody from the dead uh, as easily uh, one hour after they've died or four, hour, or four days after they've died. It's no difficulty for him. So, so he, de he delays. He knows that Lazarus is already dead. Now, notice in uh, verses 21 and 32 that after the two days, Jesus does proceed to make his way to Bethany. And upon arriving, both Martha and Mary, they very respectfully, they're very respectful toward him. But, but they very respectfully express their confusion over his delay in getting there. And they very respectfully communicate their disappointment in him that he had not come sooner. You ever been confused by the ways of God? You ever have been in a place, you don't, don't shout out please, Ever been in a place where in the immediate place of a circumstance, I mean, not, not six months later or a year later where we see it clearly, but right in the middle of that circumstance, we can look at it and, and feel a sense of disappointment, even frustration with God over how it is that he's handling this situation in, in our lives. And each of them, as we've seen, said the same identical thing to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What took you so long? What took you so long? Now, that phrase that they both repeat, Lord, if you, I don't know if you've ever said that to God. <laughs> That kind of a circumstance. Lord, if you, Lord, if you had only, then this wouldn't have happened. And it's not the last time that Jesus has heard that from his disciples. He hears it to this day, I know. Again, I think perhaps there might be one or two of us here this morning where some circumstance in your life has moved from the category of hard to difficult to dire, even now into the category of hopeless 
in terms of your abilities and your resources and you've begged God and you've pleaded with Him and you've prayed and you've waited on God in this situation and He just seems to be sitting idle as one deadline after another passes and, and, and did nothing. Now in your heart, like the psalmist in Psalm 73, you'd never say it out loud, but in your heart there can be a disappointment with God with how He's handling it. There can even be a frustration with God over how he's handling this circumstance. There can even be anger with God. It's sinful, it's not right, I, I confess it, but I mean it, it can be there and even become angry with him over how it is that he's handling the situation. And I'll tell you, that kind of trial can be very, very confusing for us as Christians. Very, very disheartening for us as Christians. And again, as I said, we will all face this kind of thing at one time or another in our lives and our ministries, whether we be a Martha or a Mary. What we're prone to think of at such times is we begin to wonder and, and really doubt if God understands the seriousness of our situation. I mean, how could he remain idle in this circumstance that we are in the middle of with one nostril out of the water how could he remain idle if he was aware of the seriousness of the situation and, and we begin to doubt if he he knows what's really going on in our lives we can begin to doubt his wisdom in terms of how he is handling the situation we can begin to doubt his love for us whether he really does care about us. We read it in the Bible. We see it on the page. We have a history of experiencing his love. But this is a new place where we've never been before. And is his love for us really greater than the difficulty of the situation that we find ourselves in today? And we can even become frustrated and impatient with God over how he's handling our situation. And what this passage teaches us about times when God seems to delay in answering our prayers, when God seems to be taking too long to address a very real crisis in, in our lives, it teaches us a couple of very important things in order that we can maintain perspective during those times. Because those times are real. That's why passages like this are in the Bible. Number one, this passage teaches us that God knows all about our situation. In fact, as hard as it can be for us to believe it, He knows our situation better than we do. He knows the true facts about our situation better than any messengers that we send to Him. Better than any prayer team that we have interceding for us on our behalf in the middle of this crisis. He knows more about the situation than all of the people who know us best and pray for us most. His delays, his seeming inaction never come out of some ignorance on his part. And I need to know that during these kind of times in my life. He knows stuff 
that we don't know, stuff that if we did know, we would view our situation differently and we would view the solution to our situation far differently than we do. Someone has said, God, nothing does nor suffers to be done, but what thou wouldest thyself do, couldst thou see the end of all he does as well as he. I like it so much, I'm going to read it the second time. God, nothing does nor suffers to be done, but what thou wouldest thyself do, couldst thou see the end of all he does as well as he. Very godly friend who took and translated, restated it in this way, a little easier English for all of us to understand. And here's how he said it. God answers all of my prayers the same way I would answer them if I had his wisdom, his power, and his love. God answers all of my prayers in the same way that I would answer them if I had his wisdom, his power, and his love. And at times where God's ways are very confusing to me, when they really stretch me and they stretch my faith, I find it necessary to remind myself, Damien, he's always been gracious to you. Never been anything but gracious all of your life. He has always been wise and Damien you have never known him to make a single mistake in all the years you've known him not even one and it's the truth though things have looked very very iffy for me once in a while time has always proven him to be absolutely perfect in his decision making but they look like a catastrophe for a while. But when enough time, some time of separation occurs between the event, and now we can see it, not with 2020 kind of hindsight clarity, none of us see it that clearly, but we even if we can see it through a fog one day, we can ultimately see enough to realize, wow, Lord, all those things I was pleading for, all those things that I was asking for, all those ways that I thought this would be the best way, this is, what are you doing, why are you waiting, How, this, is, this is obviously what has to be done. And ultimately when we see what he does, and we look back and we realize, Lord, I was trying to press an infinitely inferior plan upon you. I didn't realize it at the time, but now I can see it. And that's been our testimony in our walk with the Lord through the years, over and over and over again. And it'll be a testimony. It'll be the same testimony in our lives to the deep waters of any situation that we're facing in our lives today. The second thing that we learn here that's very important is that we must never allow God's delays to cause us to doubt God's love. His delay, Jesus' delay, was no reflection of his lack of love for Lazarus or for Mary or for Martha. 
And so too, when he delays to operate in a certain way in our lives, it's never, and we must never go to the place where we begin to doubt the greatness of his love for us. He loves us. He loves us in any situation that we're in. We are never to look at our circumstance, and, and we, we know it, but sometimes we can get rocked by it when we're in a really difficult trial. We must never allow, uh, come to conclusions about God's love for us on the basis of our physical circumstances, only on the basis of the cross of Calvary. God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the Bible says. That's the great demonstration of his love for us, and that demonstration never changes. The third thing that we learn here that's so important is to realize that when God does delay, he only delays in order to do something even better in our lives. No matter how perfect we think our plan is that we want God to do in this circumstance, no matter how perfect we think our timing is, God, you need to do it right now. I mean, this is, going, this is moving from hard to, to difficult to dire, and we're right on the you know, edge of this turning into an impossible uh, situation. No matter how perfect we think that our plan or timing is concerning some circumstance in our life, if the Lord appears to be disregarding our timing and, and our plan, it's only because... He is up to something better than our plan that he is working out in the situation. And sometimes it can be very hard for us to believe that any plan could, even God's plan, could be better than the one that we have envisioned in this situation. But I can honestly say, and I know that you can testify to it in your own heart, I can honestly say that every time the Lord has disappointed some expectation of mine on the short term as time has gone by and the reason for the delay becomes clear I've always discovered that that his delay was for my good he was doing something so big and beyond my understanding of the situation that it, it was infinitely greater than what I could have, could have come up with. I like a passage in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. You might jot it down for later. But I, uh, Isaiah declared, Therefore the Lord will wait. Oh, rats. I'm not, I'm not a waiter. I'm a goer, a doer, a mover. I'm not, the, I'm not that... I'm learning patience, but I'm not the most patient person in the world. I'm not the most impatient. Okay, we're going to have to qualify all of this, do we? Therefore the Lord will wait, and then here it is, that he may be gracious to you. That he may be gracious to you. And we find many examples of this kind of thing in the Bible. You have Joseph in the Old Testament given these great visions and dreams by God that he's going to become the greatest in his family. That not only are his brothers going to bow down and, and uh, kind of give respect to him, but even his father and his mother are going to do that. In other words, he's going to be given some kind of position of authority within the family that's greater than what his parents have and his children and his brothers, even though he has many brothers that are older than him. 
So the visions that God gave uh, to him, tremendous visions, and he would have to wait many, many years for God to fulfill his promises to him. But when God did, God exceeded any expectation that Joseph might have had of God. It was worth the wait. The wait was hard. You think, nothing could be, nothing could be worth the wait. It was worth the wait. He became the greatest man in the Middle East, second only in power to Pharaoh. And for what purpose? Be used by God to protect God's plan of salvation to provide His promise to provide a Jewish Messiah to the world. As through His position that God had given to Him, that His parents and His brothers and their family would ultimately come into Egypt and survive a famine that they might not otherwise have survived. And we sit here today, our faith in Christ as our Savior, a heaven-bound people, because Joseph stayed faithful to the Lord in the confusing season and allowed God's greater plan to unfold through his life. I think of David given anointed as the next king of Israel. But he's just a boy. He's just a ruddy lad. Red-haired, red-faced boy. Samuel anoints him as the next king of Israel. And after Saul, and the next day he became king, marched into Jerusalem and lived happily ever after. That's not what happened. It would be years before he would ever experience the fulfillment of God's plan for his life. He'd run for his life. I mean, at the times where he could look and cry out to God, you know, this is anointed? I mean, how hard would life be if I wasn't anointed by you as the next king? I mean, he really went through a lot of rough things. Difficult things. Things that would frustrate you. Things that would put potential disappointment in your heart related to God. He wasn't a great waiter himself. You read the Psalms, how often he's speaking to himself to have, you know, wait on God. And yet, by the time the whole thing unfolded, he became not only the king, a king in Israel as God had declared he would, but he became the greatest king that Israel ever knew. God exceeded David's dream. But it took time for all of that to unfold. When God delays, it's only because he plans to outdo our best plan. That's why he delays. Isaiah put it this way, Isaiah 55. God said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. It's a famous passage, isn't it? It's nice. It makes a nice plaque. But it is a living word to our hearts at times like this. For my thoughts, God said, are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. Somebody might say, Yes, I've gathered that. <laughs> but there's another verse. And here's the important verse. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It is also important to realize 
that God's timing in our lives is based upon a greater goal and, and than we often operate under. Most often, uh, I, I view the best way for God to work in my life as whatever um, is the quickest and the easiest on me. Now, I find that God doesn't really care about what is the quickest and easiest for me. God works in our lives with the greater goal of being glorified through our lives and through our circumstances. And oftentimes, in order for him to be glorified, he's going to pull us out of the pickle. He's going to do it. But he wants to do it in a way that's not just good for us, but it develops our faith. And it allows him to be seen by the world that is watching our lives. And in order for him to be glorified in the circumstance, very often he must allow the situation to move from hard to difficult to dire and even into the category of impossible so that when he flexes his strong right arm and his plan unfolds in our lives and overwhelms the circumstances that we will look at it for the rest of our lives and realize God did that. And he will be glorified in our hearts for the rest of our lives and those that are watching in our family, our co-workers, others that are around us in the neighborhood and in school and all, that those that are watching our lives, they will recognize only God could have done what he did in that situation. If Jesus had shown up in healed Lazarus while he was sick, there were, no doubt there would have been people that would have looked and said, well, he probably would have gotten well on his own anyway. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, if he, I'm not sure that he really did experience the power of, of God here. But when someone has been dead and in the grave for four days... I don't know if you can talk about miracles with God in terms of degrees, but that's, that's a, it seems to me that that's a bigger issue. I mean, the, the decomposition of Lazarus' body after four days is so great that when Jesus orders the stone to be rolled away, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, Martha protests and said, Lord, by now he stinketh. And it, I love the old King James. It's very direct. So this wasn't a case of, you know, that he has swooned and he's passed out or that he's sick and he's been healed. His body has even begun to corrupt. And now Jesus comes in and at that point in time, he does what he does. And this, after things have become humanly impossible, this allows the power of God to be seen. I think that great peace in these kind of circumstances is found in something called a surrender. A surrender where we surrender to God in the situation. We declare, Lord, my life is yours. I would have thrown it away a thousand times in a thousand different ways by now if you hadn't come in into it. It's yours. Do with it as you please 
for your glory. Do whatever will bring glory to you in this situation. And then we can rest in that. Lord, work in this situation for your glory and for my good. And then rest in the fact that he will do that. And he will do it unfailingly. God has no other agenda in our lives but to bless us. That's his heart toward us. He's not working some other agenda related to you. He has no other agenda in our lives but to bless us. And he will be faithful to that agenda. If he delays, it is only in order to do something better. And time will reveal it to be so. Let's stand together and let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of this passage. Thank you for so many of us, Lord, in this room, that probably to a person, those of us who know you, that this has been our experience with you. But we thank you, Lord, for the reminder that you give to us of your goodness and of your grace and your faithfulness as we're facing new challenges in our lives. We pray that this living, eternal word that is going to outlive the heavens and the earth would be a great blessing and encouragement, Lord, in the heart of each one of your children this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.